Lord, thank you for this evening that we have to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you would want us to see from all of this. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Book of Zechariah. The name Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. So he's got an interesting interesting name. Uh, The writer of this is Zechariah. He tells us so right in the book. He's the son of Berechiah and the son of Edo, the prophet. So he's got a long, long history of being in the prophets. He's a contemporary of Haggai. So the previous book is Haggai. Uh, if you go to Ezra 6, verse 14, you will see that both of them are referenced in the book of Ezekiel. They are contemporary with the returning Jews from Babylon. They went with the Jews out of Babylon to Jerusalem and are helping to get the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So this is our time frame. Uh, he's going to tell us that he's in the, the period of uh, Darius, King Darius. You have King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian that conquered Babylon. He ends up sending the people back and he pays money and tributes and all kinds of things to get the city and the temples rebuilt. Then you have Artaxerxes after Cyrus and then you have Darius. The book right now is in Darius's time is the, is the period that we're looking at. Uh, we don't know much about Zechariah other than his couple of references in Ezra uh, that he was with them at that time. The date of the book is approximately 520 B.C. Uh, at the return of the Israelites to, to rebuild the uh, Jerusalem and the wall. Um, it, he's mentioned in Ezra, uh, in Ezra 424, we, he's mentioned in there. That's about 16 years in Jerusalem. Uh, at 538 B.C., Cyrus allowed the children of Israel to go back to Jerusalem to, to build. And it took about 16 years to build the temple. And now they're at the point of Darius at, at 522. So they're right toward the end of the building of the temple during this period of time that we're looking at. The temple was completed in 515 B.C. So we, this is one of those places where we have some pretty solid dates. Very rare in the Bible to have very solid dates. And he gives some very specific things in his statement, like at the very beginning, he says, in the eighth, mo- eighth month of the second year of Darius. So we know exactly when this book was started. Now he's going to find out very quickly that we move, very, we move four months later and then we move another year later. He gives a lot of very specific dates as to what's happening in this book. Uh, the purpose of this book was basically to rebuke the sinful condition of the people and in a desire to motivate the people to build the temple, and they really saw the coming of Jesus. So we have a lot of Messianic uh, views in here, both his first coming and his second coming in the, in, in, for the future. So there's a lot of things that go on in this book. It, the outline of the book is kind of an interesting outline. In the first six chapters, he gives us a series of eight different visions. And some of these visions are kind of strange. (laughs) And we're going to look at those ones as we go on. Uh, Then he talks about, in this next two chapters, 7 and 8, he talks about the fast and festivals. And basically he's chewing, going to chew the people out because they're doing it just out of ritual. And and that was a big deal that he's going to bring up. And then the last uh, uh, six chapters are all about the Messiah. So we're going to see these, uh, these, pro- these uh, activities going. And it is a very powerful book in many, in many aspects as we go through it. And it's a very prophetic book for the Messiah. And so it's a fun book. And it will cover a lot of things going on into the, even our future uh, for the second return. So that gives us our brief, quick overview. And we'll start at chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Beharkiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say you unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn you unto me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, says the Lord of hosts. But you not be not be you not as your fathers, unto whom your 
the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as unto the Lord of hosts thought we to do unto us according to our ways, and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. His introductory is a chastisement. <laughs> uh, chastising. He goes, this is the date, second, second year, eighth month of Darius's reign. And he goes, gives out exactly who he is with his pedigree. All right? So he's going, he is not, he's, you know, apparently these names are not a nobody because he ends with Edo the prophet. So he's going, I come from a line of prophets. He's making his case. Kind of like Paul when he kept saying, I am apostle. God made me an apostle. This is my, this is my statutes. Here he's laying out his, this is who I am. Listen. All right, he goes, I'm not a nobody. God didn't just call me off the, off the turnip truck. I'm, I've, got a, I've got training. I've been, I've been raised up. I know what I'm saying, and this is what God is saying to you. So he's, he's laying that out. And then he says, the Lord has been displeased with your fathers. Kind of an interesting way to, way to say this. Now, the people of Israel had gone into captivity for 70 years. All right? The last kingdom of Israel in the south had finally gone so far that God says, okay, now you've been so bad, you're going into captivity. And he promised them that they were going into captivity for 70 years. It's kind of nice to know that you're only going to be, be sent away for 70 years. Uh, and he's saying, your fathers, your fathers were really bad and God was angry with them. All right? And this is the, the, the place he's putting them. And he's kind of saying, you've got a choice in front of you. You can be like your fathers <laughs> or you can do what I say. And he's not really criticizing them yet, but he's giving them that choice. And he says, Wherefore say you unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Turn you unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, says the Lord of hosts. And I love this statement. Turn to me, and I will turn to you, God says. This is a beautiful statement because no other religion has this type of God. All the other gods are, if I turn to him, maybe, possibly... I can get him to be on my side. God says, we turn to him, repent and turn back to him and he will turn back to us. This is a beautiful statement for us. This is a great place for us to be to know that God says, turn and I will turn to you. This is, a, this is something that we can grab hold of. If I feel far from God, as the statement goes, it's not God who moved, it's me who moved. But all I, he's waiting is for me to come to him. Just as in the story of the prodigal son, the son finally, I love the way it says, the son finally came to his senses and said, well, my father's servants are better treated than I am here, so I'm going to go and just say, make me one of your servants. And the father was watching for him to come down the road and didn't say, well, I'm just going to stand here and wait for my son to get here to me. It says it literally, the father ran to the son. As soon as he saw him, he ran to the son. And this is how God treats us. We turn to him, and he turns back to us. Not that he's even ever left. We're the ones that left in the first place. But we turn back to him, and then he comes and meets us more than halfway and says, okay, come on over, you're mine. And here's the beginning of that statement. He says, turn, and I will turn to you. And this just is a powerful statement, and we need to be able, this is one that you want to grab hold of and say, God, you desire. God desires us so much that he comes to us when we make, the, make even a move his way. This is the beauty of our relationship with the God of the universe that we have. He wants us. Why he wants us is another story altogether. I have no idea. You know, we have nothing to offer him. 
and yet he died for us and says, I want you. And I struggle with that sometimes going, God, I, I accept that you want me, but why? Why would you want me? Why would you want anybody out there? We have nothing to offer him, and yet he says, I will turn to you. I will come to you. And this is the beauty. We go to him and say, God, I, I'm turning to you. And he just rushes to us. And then he goes, Be not as your fathers, to whom the former prophets have cried, saying, The Lord of hosts, turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, says the Lord. So he says, Turn to me, do not be like your fathers who did not turn. And they ended up in captivity. This is a very important statement. God oftentimes says, don't be like those that are turning away from him. And other places he says, be like those who do turn to him. And this is very important for us. Are we willing to listen to God? Or are we going to be hard-headed and, and ignore him and, and walk into trouble and trials and tribulations? And we're going to have plenty of trials and tribulations without being hard-headed, but they're even worse when we're walking away from God because they're intensified and we don't feel his presence. And this is the big problem that we have is sometimes when we start walking away from God, everything seems worse than it ever was. And we may have been going through all kinds of problems before, but we had our presence with God looking at him and everything seemed to be working out okay and everything was you know, fine. We walk away from God and it's kind of interesting, even less, you know, I truly believe there's been times when I've had less problems hit me when I'm not following in tight with God, falling down on my face than, and, you know, than when I was walking with God through the midst of a storm. You know, now I'm being knocked over by the puff of breeze and over there I was walking through the gale forces and the hurricanes without ever noticing it and over here I'm being knocked down by, by feathers and, and puffs of wind because I'm not with God and feeling like I'm being miserably misused because I'm not following him. My eyes aren't on him. Peter, walking on the water, took his eyes off Jesus and started sinking. And you know, you can, you can picture what was going through his mind. You know, you know, and I've said this before, he's walking on the water, he's looking at Jesus, no problem. Sees the storm and goes, why am I out here on the water in the storm? And by the way, why am I, how am I walking on the storm and the water in the first place? Now, all of a sudden, all the doubts hit him when he took his eyes off Jesus. And, all, and you know, this is our problem with our lives. If we take our eyes off Jesus, then all of a sudden we see all the potential problems that we can have. And then we start going, well, I can't do what I'm doing. I can't walk through this storm. I, you know, what, what's going on here? And we get beat up. And he's saying, don't be like them. They, they heard they, were, they had evil ways. God said, turn from them. And they did not listen. This is the most important thing. God it wants us to listen. We read, our, we read the scriptures, and we have a, quite a big advantage over any of the children of Israel. We have an incomplete Bible. All right? The children of Israel... They might have had a copy of the Pentateuch available in the synagogue. Other than that, they really did not have complete versions of the Bible, all the prophets, all the word of God. They had to go with what they were told. And if you've ever been around people who, who have been told the Bible all their life and never really read it, you could hear some very interesting things that came out of the, supposedly came out of the Bible. And it wasn't so long ago, even for our country, that we did, the, the average person had, didn't have a, per, a copy of the Bible. Before the Gutenberg Press, very few people ever had a Bible, including most churches did not have a Bible in them. The Bibles were too expensive when they were handwritten. The Gutenberg Press made at least the Bible available to the church. And in many cases, the church was the only one that had the only place where a Bible sat. And even in early America, the church would have a Bible. You would not have a Bible at your home in most cases. 
unless you were very wealthy. And this is one of the things that the, in America, the First Continental Congress actually printed Bibles so that every home and every citizen would have a Bible in it because they knew how important it was for the Bible to be in every home. And then they printed Bibles to be distributed to the Indians. Now, can you imagine if our current government decided they were going to print Bibles <laughs> and pass them out to the citizens of, the, of our country <laughs> and, to the, and to the, you know, all the, any pagans that are out there, you know. They're, they're, you're right, there would be riots all over there. How dare you put that, put that religion above all others? We have the great advantage in our country now, in our world now, to be able to read God's word and be able to hear his word taught and live it out. These ones just had to go with what the prophets told them, what they heard in the, in the, in the temple. And most of the time, that wasn't even read from the Bible very often. It was just one or two things, and then they spoke. And just like many of the pastors in our country and today, what they spoke may not have had anything to do with what they read. So we have this problem. He's saying, hear my word. Do not reject it. We have such great advantage in our day and age. You know, and I encourage us at this church to read through the Bible every year. Spend time in God's word. Listen. Come to the Bible studies. Be taught. Listen to the stuff on the radio. We have some good channels on the radio for the most part. with some good speakers. So we have great opportunities to listen. But the most important thing is as we listen, obey. All right? We need to obey God's word. Uh, Greg Laurie has said on his messages many times, he goes, the easiest place to get a hard heart toward God is in church. Why? Because we hear his word so often in the church, and if we're not obeying, we can get a hard heart real easy. Oh, heard it a hundred times, no big deal. Well, are you obeying it? Nope, I just heard it. <laughs> I, you mean I was supposed to hear and obey? No, I was just listening. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> trust obeys fine, but 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 here and not obey is not okay. Uh, and here he's saying, when you hear God's word, be obedient, go out and do it. And then he goes, where are your fathers now? You know, where are the prophets that spoke? And he's he's being being kind of redundant, uh, being rhetorical here. He goes, you know, your fathers aren't here, the ancients are not here. They they have passed away because of their disobedience. They went into captivity and died in Babylon. And many of them died in Babylon before they came back. And he says, where are they? And then he says, but my words and my statutes, which I have commanded my servants the prophets, did they not take hold with your fathers? And, and they returned. In other words, they are still there. The books were still there. The scrolls were still there. He says, they're out there. And he says, and said, like as unto the Lord of hosts, thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so he hath dwelt with us. When God says judgment is coming for disobedience, it comes. Now it may take a while. Uh, last night we talked about Jeremiah and uh, Elisha talking to Ahab, and Ahab repented. And God said, okay, because he repented, the punishment and curse is still going to fall on his family, but not in his day. Jonah went to Nineveh, and he said, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The Ninevites repented, and they got about 100 extra years of existence before God destroyed them. When we turn, we can change God's heart and, uh, and curses toward us, at least for the short term. Usually they will fall somewhere because he said that it's going to happen. Now the good news is Jesus died for sin and now true grace and repentance can, can happen because Jesus took the penalty for sin upon his body and upon himself. He was the propitiation for sin. Very big word, propitiation means that he took all of God's wrath for sin upon himself. It's a beautiful word. You know, all, 
all punishment fell on Jesus for sin. So now, what is people sent to hell for? Rejecting Jesus. So this is the key to all of this. When God forgives us, he can forgive us completely because Jesus took the punishment. So he can say, you are forgiven because of what Jesus did for you. And we don't want to be rejecting all of this uh, as we go forward. So very important to, to look at the grace of God. He can give us grace because of what Jesus did. Without, what Jesus, without Jesus going to the cross and taking all that punishment, God's righteousness and justice would demand that we have to pay it. And this is the, the beauty of God's plan. Every other religion based, is based on me trying to please God, which I cannot do. I can never please God, a perfect holy God. So God says, fine, I'm going to come and I'm going to pay your price for you and you just have to accept my, my sacrifice and accept my gift that's handed out to you. And so we have a very easy, and then people go, well, that's too easy. Yeah. I love it when people tell you it's too easy. It's so easy, you won't do it. Why? Because it means that you have to humble yourself and recognize that you cannot earn salvation. And that goes against the human pride to say, I can't do it. Because we want to be, God, what can I do? You know, I've got to do some part of this. You know, okay, God, I'll take your grace now, but I've got to keep it. So I've got to work at keeping it. No, it's still all by grace. And many Christians get this way. They get saved by faith in Christ Jesus, and then they decide, well, I've got to do a bunch of stuff. I've got I've to I've I've keep my salvation. No, it's still by grace. Now, does that mean I'm not going to do anything for God? No, because I love him so much. I'm now serving him because of my love for him, not because I'm getting something from that service. And this is where the important thing is. Why do we take care of our families or our spouses? Is hopefully not because we're trying to get something back, but because we love them. And our love for them allows us to go further than we'd ever go for what we're getting back. Because sometimes there's nothing coming back. And that's when love is really tested. And that's when I go, okay, I'm just going to love this person just because I have chosen to love them. And that hopefully, sometimes that's the way it is with our kids. When our kids go prodigal and we're heartbroken because we don't, we're, we're not happy with the direction they're going and we still love them. Now, I do know that some people disown their kids when they get that bad, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. The family love is supposed to stay reaching out to them and draw, trying to draw them back. That's God's love for us. No matter what we do when we're his child, He's waiting to draw us back. He's, he's waiting for us to come back. Now, he doesn't necessarily pursue us. Now, the Holy Spirit pursues us. The Holy Spirit will convict and say you're not in the right place. And then when you're doing your sin and thinking you're having fun, he'll convict you of it and, and take away what little fun there might have been because he's making sure that you're not going to enjoy it at all. You know, so that, because that's not where you belong. We're no longer in the world's system, so the Holy Spirit will not let us enjoy the world system. He's going to keep teaching us, and as we learn more, we grow, he starts teaching us more and more of the world system. He says, nope, this isn't for you. Nope, this isn't for you. Nope, this isn't for you. And before long, we start becoming more like Christ, better representative of God, with less flesh in us, but still there. It would be really nice if he would just crucify all the flesh and get rid of it all at one time, and then we could walk in perfection. Uh, don't know anybody that's happened to yet. <laughs> so it would be nice, but it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And the best heroes in the Bible didn't have that happen to them, so it's, it's not going to happen to us. Uh, I'm not better than Paul. I'm not better than David. I'm not better than... You know, Elijah, you know, uh, any of these other guys. So uh, it's going to be a long time till I get perfect. The day I die or get, uh, get uh, 
raptured from this world, I'll get, I'll get my perfect body and, and my perfect uh, spirit. Until then, I'm going to have to grow. <laughs> and he's going to keep showing me new things. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not getting better. Over time, we are getting better. He's taking more and more out of us and putting more of himself in us. And we should see that growth coming out. Okay, God, I'm not doing, okay, I'm not, I'm not as angry at people anymore. I'm more loving. I'm more forgiving. Yes, I guess there's more room for each one of those, but, but I'm, I'm better at it than I was. And this is where God is trying to take us over time. Verse 7. Upon the 24th day of the, of the 11th month, in, which is the month of Sabbat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were red horses speckled in white. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show you what these, what these are. The man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they which the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, the earth sits still and is at rest. This is his first vision. He sees a vision of a man sitting on a red horse and he's got a bunch of speckled red horses behind him. Uh, kind of a bizarre, bizarre picture. And he, huh? <laughs> they might be a reddish brown, who knows, but it says red. Yeah, speckled, speckled, red horses speckled in white. Uh, you horse lovers probably know more of what, that, what these colors might mean, but that's okay. And so Zechariah is looking at this and he goes, God, what, what, what is this? You got a guy in a, for, in a, in a, bun, in a in amongst, amongst the myrtle trees or bay trees, whatever kind of trees they are, and he's got a bunch of red and white horses behind him. Uh, and they talk to him and he says, these are those that the Lord has sent throughout the world to walk to and fro. Most likely angels. They're representing angels in this case. Because in Job chapter 1 and 2, it talks about Satan walking to and fro amongst the world looking for things. And God apparently has his angels walking to and fro looking for things to, that are going on. The horses are representing angels. The man appears to be Jesus. All right, there's no clear statement on this because it's a, the only thing we have is the angel of the the angel of the Lord, which usually refers to Jesus. All right, when it says the angel of the Lord, it's usually referring to a picture of Jesus, and it says we have walked to and fro through the earth, and the earth sits still and is at rest. It, it remains still and is at peace. Now I don't know when the world has ever been still and at peace. <laughs> Uh, so the seventh day, the seventh day. <laughs> or the millennial kingdom so where are we at with this it almost looks like we're looking at a very far future time but by the same token as far as the Jews are concerned at this point they're kind of at peace they, they're back home so there's this point that they may be making is we've gone back home everything's at peace that's hard to fit in. When you read Zechariah and Nehemiah, they had a lot of hard, hardships over there with people attacking them and, and trying to destroy them. But they were home. They were home and they were happy to be home. So what is this actually saying that they are at peace? We don't really understand the whole thing on this. But let's go on and see because the angel of the Lord answers some more. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you... Will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you have indignation these, third, these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry you, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, 
I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. These are the parts that I really start thinking he's talking about the millennial kingdom as this is also setting them up. He says, How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judea, uh, Judah against which you have had indignation these 70 years? All right, this goes back to the 70 years of captivity in, in uh, Babylon. They've come back. Zambalat uh, and, uh, and many guys have come against them in, in the rebuilding of the temple. They've tried to stir up trouble. They've sent letters to Darius saying, these guys are really stiff-necked and rebellious people. They're trying to build this, this walled city so that they can rebel against you. And the, the original statement was, go check your histories and see how rebellious they are. And initially... Darius went back, pulled the records, and found out, yes, Zedekiah had rebelled against him and all these different things that went on. And he said, stop the work. So Ezra and Nehemiah had to go and communicate back with him and saying, hold it. Cyrus sent us back. We're, doing, we're only doing what we were told to do. We're not being rebellious. And Darius reversed his stance. But this is the battles going on. And they're coming back and they're saying, how long, God, are you going to wait? How long? It's been 70 years. We've been back now some 16 years. How long is it going to be until we get our peace? All right. The ultimate goal is the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns in Jerusalem over the whole world. This is what the Jews are waiting for. The day that everything gets fulfilled and Every nation looks to Jerusalem and they are at peace. So the begging here goes, how long? How long is it going to be until we finally get there? So Jesus is asking God. It, apparent, this, this one gets to be where, where you start looking at and going, but you've got to understand that there are things that are in the Father's hands, such as when is he coming back? Because even throughout the scriptures, it seems that Jesus is not in control of his rapture and his coming back. It's in the Father's hands. And this goes into where we really struggle with the Trinity. Three separate individuals that are all completely one, and yet there seems to be big separations between them. The Holy Spirit dwells mostly among men and deals with men. Jesus is waiting for his bride and he's waiting for the father to say go get your bride because it appears all through scripture that he still doesn't know when the father is going to say go get him. So this is hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to picture. They're all God. They all know everything but there seems to be certain things that they choose by divine order to not know. And this gets us into great, you know, great difficulty. How can they all be all-knowing and yet not know something like this? And it could very well be. Yeah. And it could be that some of this is for us humans to kind of understand. Yeah. I understand when it is. I know when it's going to happen. But I want you to, I want you to be aware of it. Uh, and when he was walking this world, he told him, I don't know when when this is all going to happen. I'm going back to the Father. And so we have this whole interesting dichotomy. When it says the angel of the Lord, it's usually an appearance of Jesus. When Abraham met the angel of the Lord, 
and, and it was getting ready to tell them what was going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, he bowed down and worshipped. No angel accepts worship. So we know that this was not an just, just an angel. Because everywhere in the Bible where an angel shows up and people fall down on their face, they get up. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a man, I don't, you know, or I am like a man, don't, I don't accept worship. Uh, so when we see this worship, when we see the term the angel of the Lord, uh, it, we can think Jesus. Now it doesn't necessarily have to be. Yeah. And he didn't start in Bethlehem. He lived before Bethlehem. No, he was, he's always lived. He's always lived. I believe Jesus was the one that walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the night. When it said God walked with them in the cool of the night, I believe that it was Jesus, the you know, God in flesh, walking with them and talking with them. So it's, it's a very hard concept for us to get and here, again, he may just be literally, I want you to ponder this question. Yeah. Zachariah put this out to people to ponder this question. When is God going to give the peace of Jerusalem? Because this is what they have been looking for. We're getting close to the end of the Old Testament scriptures being written. And there's this whole process that's going on. And he's saying, there's a peace that's coming. A peace that's coming. And they still don't know it yet. They know that it's promised. David's descendant is going to sit on the throne for the whole world to be worshiping at and come to. And they've never seen it. The closest they came was in David and Solomon's reign. Solomon, Solomon had the majority of the world, you know, the Jewish empire conquered. But it still wasn't the whole world coming into them. So we see this process coming in. We are sitting at about 525 B.C. The last book of the Old Testament is written around 400 B.C. because they call that period between Malachi and the New Testament the 400 years of silence, where it appears that God did not speak to the people, at least not in a book that was inherent and absolutely correct. Now, does he mean for 400 years he didn't speak to the people at all? No, I don't believe that. Uh, it was just quiet. There was no great prophet writing books. There was no great things going on. Uh, we do have stories from that period. We have the Maccabean Rebellion that happened during that period, in which the Catholics have put into, the, into their scripture in the Apocrypha, the, the, the story of the Maccabees, written around 150 B.C., so we have, we have stories, we have history. We know that God was doing things during that period of time, but none of it became scripture. And uh, so we don't know a lot about it. And so we, here we see him saying, you know, when? When is, you know, it's been, been 70 years. And then it says, the Lord answered the angel that talked to me with good words and comfortable words, encouraging words. In other words, it's going to happen. Probably something like, it's going to happen. Don't worry, I've said it. It's going to happen. And again, this time we just see the angel. We don't see the angel of the Lord. So it's possible that this is also an angel. This is where we get very complex. When we start thinking we're seeing a picture of Jesus, not every part of that picture, but God talking to an angel, talking to Zechariah is also hard to picture as well. So we, I'm not going to be firm that this has to be Jesus, but it's also very interesting you know, on this. But he's being comforted. And then so now we have another angel. So the angel that communed with me said, Cry out and, thus, and say, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. God has perfect righteous jealousy. And there is a true place for jealousy. Now, we usually think of jealousy as being a very negative thing. Jealousy is a possessive, keep the person to themselves. And in human terms, jealousy is almost always negative. But jealousy is that, that anger that will come up when somebody tries to separate you from your spouse. Right? And there are places where jealousy is valid. 
and says, no, you are not going to come in and separate my, my relationship with my, with, my, with my spouse. And that's what God says. I am jealous for J Jerusalem. Nothing is going to separate me from Jerusalem. None of the other gods, none of the other, not their sin. He goes, I am jealous that they be kept pure and righteous. And, you know, we all know, we've all seen the stories where somebody is jealous for the wrong reasons. But, you know, sometimes the root of that jealousy, they may not express it correctly, but sometimes that jealousy is, is well-founded. Now, it's not accepted by the person that, it's, that feels it because they may be blind to it. Um, you know, and oftentimes it's the woman who notices somebody going after their, their, after their husband long before the husband, you know, notices that they're, they're, they're being played, you know, played toward. And it can be the other way around, you know, but the person who's being the reception of that jealousy doesn't really, you know, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm not doing anything. I'm not, I'm not planning to do anything. And they're going, yeah, but that person, <laughs> that person is. You may not have it in your mind, but they do. And this is what God's saying. I am jealous toward Jerusalem. I am not going to let anything into, into our relationship that is going to take them away. And this is why he was so strong and harsh against the idolatry that was going on and, so many, and the sins that were going on, saying these things are taking you away from our relationship. He goes, I'm going to continue loving you and I'm, going to, and I'm going to accept you when you repent, but I do not want to see this relationship broken by you going after something that you're not even understanding. You know, being that foolish person that Proverbs talked about, the, the young man that went to the, the harlot on the, on the street corner and, and totally oblivious to what was going on and went in and got... And got suckered into the relationship that was, that was going to hurt him. And God's saying, I'm not going to, I am going to be hard and not let those things happen to you. Which is why we need each other as Christians and we need his word so that we can be able to understand that his jealousy is strong. And sometimes we go, God, you know, what is wrong with you? Why, why are you having such a big deal about this? Why are you making it so hard for me to to do these things, and he goes, because you don't know what, what road you're headed down. You don't see the trap that's being set for you. And this is very important. This is why we keep everything so much above board in, in relationships in our, and you know, do not do things that might appear to be evil because it starts us down that potential path of evil. And God says, I am jealous. I am jealous for you. And we need to be able to take this idea that jealousy is not always bad. Now it often is, especially when it's done by human. You know, when a, when a husband won't let his wife go out with the girls, you know, for a night out, you've got a problem. You know, unless, you, unless the girls he's going out are, are the type that are going to go find guys, you know, they, there should be no problem. But if they're church girls and they're trying to generally do things right, there's no problem for, for them to spend some time together and go out. Now, having some guy friends might be another problem. <laughs> you know, because I am one that truly believes that platonic relationships don't stay platonic very long. Given the right circumstances, they almost always go beyond that stage. Not 100%, but they don't, they don't tend to stay plutonic over a period of time. So I'm not sure that I would let my wife go out with a bunch of guys. <laughs> that would be a problem. Going out with a girl, a bunch of girls and, you know, and friends, go have a good time. Have some fun. Now, that gets a little more problematic in our day and age, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> without going into the more detail on it, it gets problematic in our day and age. But you understand what I'm saying. I, you've got to be careful with this jealousy because human-wise, it can cause problems. But by the same token, when you are seeing something happen, you can't just let it go because you're so afraid that somebody's going to call you jealous. When you know something's happening, it has to be called out. Well, it's like there's protective jealousy and then there's selfish jealousy. Yes. And this is what is a good definition. Yeah. This is a protective. Yeah. 
Nothing is going to come in our, into our relationship to break it up. And if it's selfish, I just want to keep you to myself, that's bad. <laughs> that's, a good tur- that's a good way to turn it. Turn it. Uh, and God's is very protective. He says, I am not going to have you follow other gods. I'm not going to have you go down these paths of sin to lead you away from me into the bad. And God is saying, I have this jealousy. It may seem like it's taking a long time for things to happen. He goes, but it's going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be raised up. In the last days, in in the millennial kingdom, Jerusalem is going to be the center of all economic and government rule. Then in the new heaven and new earth, God says that Jerusalem came down from heaven into the new heaven and new earth. And just a nice small city, 15, you know, 15, uh, 1,500 miles square. <laughs> just, just, a small, just a small city. You know, definitely going to be the center of everything <laughs> in, the new, in the new heaven and new earth. And we become Jerusalem in that case because it's his bride adorned that dwells in Jerusalem. So it's going to be a beautiful event. And God says, I've got a perfect plan. And I am jealous for my bride. Because God, in the Old Testament, the Father said that Israel was his wife. He expected them to be obedient. He expected them to be following him and not commit adultery, which is what he called following the the idols. He goes, you have gone a whoring. You've committed adultery with these idols. And he goes, you're my bride. Where, what are you doing? And then he would bring in judgment to bring them back. And here he says, and then in verse 7, And I am very sore displeased with the heathen, or the Gentiles, that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. What this one ends up talking about is how God used Babylon to punish his people. Right? Babylon, the Gentiles, when they were used to forward the affliction. He then told Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylons, Babylonians, you were too harsh. <laughs> and now because you were too harsh, now I'm going to judge you for your over, overreaction. You were too hard on my people. I wanted you to punish them, but you went too far. Now, did God know that they, weren't gonna, that they were going to go too far? Of course he did. He, but he set it up so that they could be punished and that Cyrus now could be made in the king of the Medo-Persian Empire 70 years later to let the people go. And it's quite interesting because God, God said in the scriptures that Cyrus will be my shepherd who will return my people to Jerusalem. And I am sure that David was, uh, David, that Daniel probably did a very good job of opening up the Bible and saying, Cyrus, your name's in our book. This book was written 70 years ago or 80 years ago, whatever, you know, at least 70 years ago plus. He goes, here's your name. Like a hundred years before, before, before you existed, here's your name. God says you, you were going to be the one that was going to return his people. Now, can you imagine that? You know, finding your name in the scriptures, specifically something that you could do when it makes no sense, because Cyrus is not a Hebrew name. So it really had no place in there. And when it was printed... Cyrus wasn't even a country that you would have cared about, you know, ruling a country that you would have cared about. And God says, hey, Cyrus, you're going to be my shepherd and send the people home. And I can picture Daniel saying, I got something to show you, Cyrus. (laughs) I, I have something to show you. And it says, they helped forward that affliction. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies, my house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to send you back. You're going to build my temple. I'm going to dwell in Jerusalem again. And a line, a measuring line, was, ra- was stretched out. A measuring line not to measure the city, but to measure the righteousness of it and say, God says, these are my words. He's going to give them another chance to live by his word. We know that they didn't. Uh, And then they were dispersed one more time by the Romans in 70 AD. They were dispersed again. 
to recently been brought back in 1948 back to a nation again. They're still not obeying God. They will be judged one more time in the tribulation period. And then he will reestablish Jerusalem. But this time, Jesus himself will reign in Jerusalem. And the people will be obedient up until the end of the thousand years when they get a chance to rebel. You know, what a beautiful picture that God says. I've got a measuring line. I have a rule. I will establish my kingdom. The third temple is, a, is going to be built sometime in the near future. The, the, the third temple for, that will, Jesus will have in the time of the millennial kingdom that Satan will stand up in the middle of and say, I am God, and all of a sudden the Jews will realize that they have been tricked. This man who said he was Messiah, who brought them supposed peace, claims to be God, and they're going to go, they realize who he is. And they run for their lives to hide, and God protects them for the other three and a half years of the millennial kingdom. But at that point, they know who it is that they're they've been tricked by and they now know who they're looking toward this is this is the great thing that is going to happen in the near future and how how near is near i don't know i think it's very close but there could be a great repentance and a great revival that makes this whole thing push off further i doubt it but it might happen I'm going to be ready for it. I'm going to be ready that I can get to spend the rest of my life and die and my kids will get to spend the rest of their life and die and my grandkids can spend the rest of their life and die. But I look at the scripture and say, wow, it's awfully close. How close are we? Who knows? Very, very close. And then he says in verse 17, cry, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts. That's his favorite sentence. In the Lord of hosts. The God of the army of heaven the host, the whole army of heaven. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. This particular statement I truly believe is the millennial kingdom. Now Israel right now has a lot of impact in the world. A lot of impact in the world. And yet they're rejected. It's kind of an amazing place. Israel is the breadbasket of Europe. They, in that little tiny country, they feed all of Europe and themselves and most of the Middle East. They produce more food than anybody else in that area, and they feed everybody. They're the leaders in development of medications. They're the leaders in development of genetics. They're the leaders in, in, in many scientific endeavors. And yet everybody hates them. Yeah, well, the part of it is they're jealous. Uh, part of it is, Satan is Satan's motivation toward it as well. Satan hates Israel because that's where the Messiah comes from. He wants to destroy them because if he can destroy Israel, then the millennial kingdom cannot happen and the, the tribulation period can't happen. So he has always been out to destroy. Before Jesus was born, he was trying to destroy them so the Messiah could not be born. After the Messiah was born, he's been trying to destroy them so that the millennial kingdom and the end days prophecies cannot be fulfilled. Satan's goal is to make God out to be a liar. If he can manage to kill out all the Jews, God has lied. He doesn't know the future. So God protects the Jews so that Satan will never be able to totally wipe them out. Now they've been hurt. There's been millions of them killed over time. And they've come close to being wiped out at several times, but God has never let them get wiped out because they are the end, time, the end times peace. Without the Jews, you do not have 144,000 evangelists preaching in the, during the seven-year tribulation. You don't have the temple being rebuilt. You don't have them running for their lives when the, when the Antichrist reveals that, you know, who he is. So they have to exist, so Satan's trying to destroy them. And how does he do that? He stirs up hatred amongst human beings against them so that they do his will without knowing that that's what they're doing. But all of this is going on so that prosperity 
and the rest and comfort of Zion that will only truly come during the millennial kingdom when Jesus is reigning. And then at the end of that millennial kingdom, Satan is let loose to stir up trouble one more time amongst the people who have been alive for that period of time then try to get them to rebel against God. And then it, the, the last battle of Armageddon is over in a heartbeat because Jesus speaks and it's over and, they, and we go to the white throne judgment. All right? Three verses, let's finish this. Verse 18. Then lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. And I said, Then said I, What come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head, but these are come to fray them, and to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horns unto the land of the Judah, to scatter it. All right, horn. First thing you want to recognize is horn represents power, and oftentimes governments. All right, so he says there are four horns that have raised up and they are scattering Israel. Huh? Musical horn or animal horn? Animal horn most likely. It's not a shofar. It's it's horn and and in Daniel we read that horns represented the powers and kings coming out of the kingdoms. Uh, So usually it literally means kingdoms. Alright, so there's four kingdoms he says that are going to scatter my people. And that, have, that are going to scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Well, we've seen them. Assyria, Babylon, Rome, and the Antichrist in the future. Four powers that are going to scatter, or have scattered, Israel. Uh, so we see this, and again, he goes, I've got four carpenters that are coming against these, these horns. So most likely they are now the angelic forces coming against the powers coming, coming against Israel because God has a plan for Israel he is never going to let them be totally destroyed he is always has a remnant in place for them and the beauty of all of this is God is in charge this this is the thing I love about all of this thing is God is in charge he is in charge of us his children he is in charge of us his church He is also in charge of all the Gentiles. Now, they may not listen to him. They may not obey him. At least they don't think they have. Uh, Solomon said, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns his heart the way he wants it to be turned. This is what we can look forward to. We're in a very interesting time in our history of our country. We're on one of the greatest election cycles to possibly be facing in great Everything stands in the balance of this election. But you know, no matter which way it goes, God is in charge. And nothing will happen that he doesn't allow. All right? Whoever wins is who God has decided is going to win. And people may think they're in control and that we're voting and we're making all those decisions, but God is the one that will make whatever is going to happen, happen. And so we just need to be ready to rest. If it goes the way that we don't think it should go, praise God, God's still in charge. If it goes the way we think it should go, praise God, he's still in charge. Because we could be very wrong in the way that we want it to go. So we need to understand that God is in control. He is sovereign. He is, the enemy has come up against Israel to scatter it, and he says, I have put an enemy in its place to hold things together, to control things. When the Antichrist comes to rule, God is still in charge and still in control. And I've said this, many people think that the Antichrist gets to do whatever he wants. The answer is no, because if, if Satan got to do whatever he wanted, the world would be dead as soon as he got power. Because that would be the easy way to make sure that nobody turns to God. 
He doesn't, he's not, remember I've said, he is not ruler of hell. His, his, his goal is to be equal to God. His goal is to be equal to God and be ruler with God. So if he can make God out to be a liar or not know the future, then he can make his point that, see, you didn't know what it was and I stopped you. He thinks he's something. If he killed all the people, he's prevented the millennial kingdom from happening. Understand? The if he kills all the people, there's nobody to be alive when the millennial kingdom starts. So there's no ruling over anybody because we're coming down as part of the ruling government. It's the people who are still alive that are, that are going to be reigned. So his goal would be to wipe out an entire population of the world. See, God, you, you lied. There's no millennial kingdom to be ruled over. So God is going to say, no, you can't kill all the people. You can't kill all the people in the world. He will have a reigning on him. Now, there's going to be a lot of room to die. 66% of the people are going to die. A lot of people are going to die, but it's not going to be everybody. He's got a leash on him. God is, always has his leash on Satan. Satan is not the opposite of God. He is a tool that God is allowing to be using to test his people. Period. Satan is on a long, you know, he's on a leash right now and he'll get a longer leash in the tribulation period, but he will still be on a leash. And even when he's released after a thousand years, he's on a leash. He's got a limited period of time to raise up an army to, to attack God, to be to be defeated. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And yet somehow he has deluded himself into thinking, I can win. I, the created being, can beat the creator. Now we don't want to be too hard on that because we as, we as human beings do that to God all the time. God, I want my way. I know you're the God, I know you're the creator, but yeah, yeah, yeah look, look at me. That's what Satan is doing. The same thing. Somehow he thinks he can defeat God. He's been on a leash for almost 6,000 years of time and yet thinks somehow I can beat God. Tries to kill all the children before Jesus is born. In, in Bethlehem, kills all the children, trying to kill, kill Jesus in the process. Uh, you know, Esther, trying to kill the, all the Jews. All the way back, over and over again, they tried to kill all the Jews and God says, nope, not going to happen not going to happen. You're not going to get away with it. We'll try to kill all the Jews during the millennial kingdom and God will protect them and hide them. You know, we'll try to kill the people, try to, try to stop everything from going forward. And God keeps saying, no, you are not in charge. I'm in charge. You know, it's kind of an interesting play going on out there. The little, little pipsqueak thinks he's trying to, to rule everything. And that's the example that we're told that when we see him at the white throne judgment, the world will look on him and say, this is the one that shook the world? This? And from that picture, I almost picture the Wizard of Oz. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you know don't, look, don't, look, don't look behind the curtain. Don't look behind the curtain. Just look what I'm, what I'm trying to show you. And when we finally see him, it'll be that that is what, that is what <laughs> shook the world. That is what we were afraid of all those years. And so Satan is on this leash. He cannot do anything more than God can do. And he says there's a, he's got workers working against it. There's the power and the horns trying to destroy and scatter. And God says, I've got workers, angels, holding things together, keeping it moving the direction that I want. What a picture of the power of God. Lord, we just thank you for this. We ask you to be with us and guide us. Lord, help us to always keep in mind that you are in charge. You are not ever going to lose control and that you are God and there is none other besides you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.